Hey, I'm Nate Flax. I'm Noah Longworth-McGuire. And this is Talking Lion. Talking Lion is a podcast focused on artist-to-artist conversation. We're primarily artists, a duo called Sleeping Lion, but we've been lucky enough to write, produce, and hang out with so many incredible rising artists since we started our project. Whether it's at sessions or parties or over cups of coffee, we've talked with our creative friends about everything. Music, life, love, and all the subtle complexities that come with being in the middle of a journey. Talking Lion is about hitting record in these conversations and sharing them with you. There's no real structure, nothing really prepared, just friends talking about life and what it's been like and where it's going. This is the start of Talking Lion's second season, and we recently launched a Patreon for fans of our show to help keep this going. Subscribers will become a part of the show in various ways, from providing questions to our guests, to getting a shout out on the show, to actually being on the show to chat with us. We'll even send you a mug. We pledge to contribute at least half of whatever we raise on Patreon towards the podcast's expenses, as well as supporting artist communities through arts, charities, grants, and by sponsoring local music events. So check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash talking lion. We know there's a scary uncertainty in the country and the world right now. We urge everyone who's listening to stay inside and do your part to prevent the spread of coronavirus. It's going to be a strange and difficult year for everyone, but we hope you can find pockets of peace and that our podcast can help make this time indoors better for you, even just for a few hours. We recorded this episode with our friend Chaz Cardigan. We first met Chaz after our first songwriting session ever. We had stopped in Nashville during our move to Los Angeles, and after we wrote Good Now with Fangs, Chaz arrived since he had booked the room after us. Since then, we've kept in touch, and we hung out last year after he played a show in LA. Some context for this interview. We recorded this over Zoom while quarantined. Chaz recently signed a joint record deal with Capitol Records and Loud Robot, J.J. Abrams' label, and just put out a new single called S.O.S. Talented, energetic, and logical, Chaz Cardigan's creative spark has shown throughout Nashville with music that bumps with a gritty honesty. So, without further ado, I'm Chaz Cardigan, and this is Talking Lion. Hello. Hey, man. How you doing, bud? Um, all things considered, pretty well, actually. <laughs> There's a lot to be considered, though. Where, where, are you, uh, where are you calling in from? Nashville, right now. Nashville. I miss Nashville. I miss Nashville, too. It's How's a it good holding city. up in all this? You know what's so crazy is that about two weeks before, you know, the national emergency was declared, we had this tornado roll through town. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Oh, wow, yeah, yeah, and and it just absolutely wrecked a whole sector of the town. And truth be told, y'all, I have not gotten a chance to go over to that side of town since the tornado happened. The tornado happened. The next day, I had a thing that that uh, I was filming. Which the whole day we were all like, "Are we really making?" content today right are are we really and like we had to check in and and make sure everyone was safe and that it was still on and then the next day i was off to la and then i was in la writing when all of the coronavirus stuff just exploded right because it had been in the states and before i left there were two cases in la and then while i was there it went up to like a hundred Oh, I, I remember going out to like get a, a drink with some friends and we had like one friend who essentially was just like, hey guys, this like actually might be a thing. And we're like, huh. yeah, okay. Yeah, right. like, a virus. like swine flu, sure. Yeah. You, know? you know, I like vaguely remember it feeling like a, a possibility in early January. And then when it just didn't happen after that, I was like, oh, okay, well, it's going to be one of those things that 10 people get here and it's just not going to be a thing. But I was in LA and it was that week of, uh, I will never forget this week, probably as long as I live. (laughs) The stock market crashed on Monday and it was the biggest crash in history. Mm -hmm. And then there was a full moon that week and and a Friday the 13th. (laughs) And yeah, when it rains, it pours, you know, cosmically. Right. And it was on the thursday night that trump announced the state of emergency but all week that was when the nba canceled the season and it's when Mm -hmm. coachella got canceled and everything and like movie theaters were closing and i was at the capitol building and we were just all so confused like what do you do i had a i had a meeting the morning of Friday the 13th i went in to go meet um the new president and the label and i'm walking in I was out in LA for a video shoot and we had spent the we had spent the whole week prepping for the video shoot and I walk into this meeting my manager calls and says video shoots off someone at bad robot has coronavirus and they're Holy quarantined shit. and I'm like 
oh, okay. And so we go in and we're talking about, oh, you know, we'll find ways to make videos or we'll make content or we'll figure out what to do. We believe in the music, blah, blah, blah. I walk out of that meeting. He says, the other video shoot you were going to do next week is canceled now too. I'm like, <laughs> uh-huh. because the building is shutting down indefinitely. Oh, Oh. Okay. <laughs> and then I go in, I'm hanging with my A&R for a little bit. We're talking about music. And then my manager calls again and he's like, hey, by the way, the tour is canceled. I'm like, ah, right. Well, of course. But like by the time I got the call, the tour was canceled. I was expecting the tour to be canceled in some what was the Who was the tour with? Well, this was my headline tour. The Barnes, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then the Barnes-Courtney tour that I was going to go on, I'd be on that right now. Well, actually, technically, right now, I'd be in L.A. talking to you guys in person. But oh, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> the, the Barnes-Courtney tour got, uh, not canceled, but postponed. But that's the other thing, is that how postponed is postponed right now. Yeah. Because, yeah. because you know, not to, not to live in it, I feel like in reading about you know what it's going to take to get back to normal and and what that means like a vaccine coming out and 60% of Americans getting vaccinated so we develop a herd immunity i don't know that i trust 60% of americans to get vaccinated <laughs> i did I think i'm rocking like a solid 4% at this point i i i have faith in like 47 but you know like <laughs> Three years ago, if you threw this situation at me, I would have said, oh, 80% of the country would get vaccinated. No question. It never would have crossed my mind that a solid portion of people would just believe it's not happening. There's this cognitive dissonance going on right now where, on the one hand, people who like are taking this seriously and are, and are reading up and like people like us who who know that this is probably going to last longer than by the we way, think not, it's going to. By the way, not to create an us-them dichotomy. I do think that's most people. And there, I don't necessarily think there's it's even worth having an us-them dichotomy, especially because I think most people are just in various ways and various degrees of severity, like taking it seriously and seeing totally. it firsthand, whatever. But I think anybody who's reading up on this is aware that like whatever we're being told about it, like whatever we're being told about when this is going to end is very much like not based in what we're actually reading. There's a cognitive dissonance there. Right, right. You and, know? Right. What we're being told at the federal level is just not what the science uh, and, and and that's that's not necessarily even getting political. That's just more like on, no, no, no. On a I'm fact wi- base, like on a fact yeah, basis. Like yeah, no, I'm with know. you. Like this is gonna be from now, like an 11 to 18 month process until we get a vaccine cleared through clinical trials that's FDA approved that we know works. And I think that's so weird for a lot of people to wrestle with because two months ago things were normal. Yeah. Well, three months ago things were normal, and now uh, life is you know what it is now though i mean our normal was weird to begin with like i feel like this is like the pokemon evolution of the whatever (laughs) chaotic yeah like country we we've already been kind of like living in but this is just like taken to sort of like the nth degree you know yeah yeah i mean i've been thinking a lot about that oh i remember where i uh where i got to that from talking about live shows in the barnes court tour like when we can get back to playing shows, you know, probably like fall of next year, we're going to have these varying levels of staggered social distancing for a while. By the way, I hope this is all an overstatement and an overreaction. I would love, oh, for sure. oh yeah, I would love to be wrong about this. And if I am in a year, then I, I'll take it on the chin and my ego will not be hurt by that. But like, I'm preparing personally to not be able to tour again until like, mid 22 or 23 and that's crazy i feel like when venues reopen you're gonna see like the top a-list artists get priority from promoters yeah. and booking agents and venues and that's not a bad thing and it's no i mean I, that's just yeah, how it's set up yeah balance. yeah everyone's gonna want to make money i actually i have i imagine vividly you probably will see artists like bruno mars playing like 500 cap rooms just to try to get money pumping into these rooms again especially because venues are going to be capped at 10 to 25 percent capacity yeah so there's probably going to be like multiple shows in a day in a room there's going to be a morning show and an afternoon and a matinee and an evening and a midnight and that may be dope actually it may totally revitalize live music again 
Or, or on the, on the flip side, there will be like massive innovations made in yep. live music recording, like uh, on a live yep. stream level. Because through all of this, there's the potential that people are going to try to get better, like focusing on this technology because now we're relying on it, you know, so much more. Like innovation tends to happen from from a need, and yep. we needed video chat as much as we needed like communication, but we didn't need necessarily necessarily to be a fidelity to that. Yeah, and now we're relying on a degree of fidelity. Completely. Um, is that why Zoom is so popular? Is Zoom just like the best at meetings? Did you guys use Zoom before three months no. ago? No, actually, the first time I used Zoom was for like a party. Like somebody invited me to like a party. I had. Zoom installed. I had had one meeting on it, and it was a phone meeting, and I, I used the phone um, uh, UI for it. And I, that must have been like December. Yeah. Zoom, like far and away, the best of these so far. Like, well, not, and that's that's the weirdest part is just like you know, it, like came, Google it Hangouts? really came out of nowhere. Yeah, I, we did. We've been doing trivia. We have a trivia team called Guessing Lion. And so I we've been doing that. trivia over Google Hangouts um, over the last like couple of weeks. I feel like Google Hangouts is more janky though. But, and, and I feel like Google Hangouts, yeah, there, there's just like it's much more of a chaotic system. Way yeah. more chaotic, yeah. Way I more like chaotic. the Brady Bunch style of Zoom. <laughs> yeah, and just everyone at once. It's I actually been, downloaded Zoom today. It's been shockingly like singular in how yeah. good it is and how adept it is for right now. I, I did a, I did Zoom Passover. That was a really interesting experience because that's that's like a double whammy. That is family holiday plus all the old people using it. Oh yeah. my God. <laughs> that's how you know an app works. Are you from Nashville? Uh, I'm originally from Kentucky, about two hours north. Whoa. Where Whoa. in Kentucky? A small town called Elizabethtown. It's uh, oh, it's, a, it's everyone's favorite uh, gas stop on I sixty five. See, I don't know anything about Kentucky, so just what was it like there? What was what kind of like like started the bug for you, like the the music making bug? Wow. Okay, so Kentucky is really interesting. There's a lot of debate within the state about what part of the country it actually belongs to, and I think it's because a it was neutral during the Civil War. So you had people fighting on both sides of the war. Um, mm -hmm. But B, geographically, it just hits a couple different parts of the country. I mean, it's, it's, it's horse racing, it's bourbon, it's chicken. That's, it's, it's a lot of meth. That's really what Kentucky yeah. is. Uh, it's, but it's also basketball. Basketball is a religion there. I, so I would say Elizabethtown is culturally pretty Midwestern, actually. When I huh. think of like the way I grew up, when I think of like my culture there... It's not really that Southern. You have some Southern influence seeping in and you'd have some old farmers and, you know, some pretty fringe right-wing guys. Classic Southern stuff. But yeah, but classic Southern. But for the most part, uh, it's more culturally like Missouri or like Indiana or Ohio or Illinois, Michigan. That it, it's, it's more Northern, honestly. And I don't know. E-Town was like pretty... It's a small town. It's like 30,000 people. Not tiny, but college town size. Mm -hmm. uh, big enough that you know most people, but there's still some people you don't know. And there's no music scene at all. Um, at least not more than like uh, high school metal bands playing in basements and churches. And I didn't know that growing up, but I, <laughs> uh, I had an older sister who listened to like loads of... Um, late 90s Max Martin pop. Ooh. So mm -hmm. I I grew up really thinking like NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera. I just thought that's what music was. I just loved whatever she was listening to and she played piano. My mom had asked her to take piano lessons, but I was genuinely into it. So I begged to take piano lessons and I got into music just because I uh, was always singing around the house. I was always dancing. I loved performing. I liked creating. I lived out in the country, so I didn't have a lot of people visiting all the time. And you get left alone with your imagination. You learn to do things on your own to occupy yourself. I was always making like little inventions out of like duct tape <laughs> yeah. and shoestring yeah. and trying to like make things. Were you a Dexter's Lab fan? Oh, huge Dexter's Lab fan. Yeah. yeah, I feel like every kid with imagination had their own lab like growing yeah, up. Oh, yeah, yeah. Kids, ne kids Next Door. Um, oh, yeah. I, oh, man, what a show. 
Also, Double D on Ed, Ed, and Eddie, all the, all the inventions like he used yeah. to put together. And I just, I was like a, you know, not to toot my own horn, I was a precocious kid. I was super smart and I was nerdy and I didn't have a lot of friends, got bullied a lot and just never socially adjusted. But I, so I had music and music was this place where I could connect and feel like I was communicating. And when I heard Queen for the first time when I was 10, that's oh, what yeah. broke the dam for me. And then suddenly I got obsessed with rock history and punk rock and rap music and I learned how to play guitar and I was uh, teaching myself how to produce on this little four track Tascam tape recorder I bought oh, with, wow. with money I made like just you know doing chores around the house and that was the bug for me I loved music I started trying to write really young but I I don't think I really started writing real songs till I was about 12 and then I was taking those tapes and I would put the demos on MySpace and I was sending out these cassette tapes to <laughs> Capitol Records and Atlantic Records and Fueled oh by Ramen, God. really thinking like me, a 12-year-old in Kentucky is going to get a record deal from Fueled by Ramen. But Have you mentioned it damn. to anybody at Capitol been like, hey, could you like check your email? Because like you might have an email from 12-year-old Chaz. Oh, all the time. Oh, I didn't. I so didn't know about email. I, I would have only sent MySpace messages or cassette tapes in the mail. <laughs> cassette oh, yeah. tapes in the mail. Maybe they're, they're sitting around somewhere. I definitely have told them that and they're like, oh, they're, they're so gone. They would have been burned <laughs> for, from the mailroom years ago. But uh, yeah, no, it is crazy. And then, yeah, that was the bug for me. So I would play shows with like cover bands where we'd play like classic rock songs as punk songs and... That was the vibe until I was about 13. You're playing like open mic nights at local barbecue joints and sports bars. And then enough people tell you, it's never going to happen here. You got to go to Nashville. Yeah, right. <laughs> Nashville is this just bastion of opportunity. Two hours to the south that's just shining like, oh, well, it's never going to happen here. There wasn't really a scene in Louisville. There was like a math rock thing going on. My morning jacket were from Louisville, but oh, yeah. I didn't really like appreciate that at that age. Um, and so I started making pretty much daily trips to Nashville with my dad from the time I oh, was wow. 13 until I graduated high school. It's crazy how young you were, but at the same time, just like listening to music, your writing is so tight. Like no matter, cause you're, what I like about your music is that it does blend genres, but what, uh, it has always been consistent is that your, your actual writing, like word for word is so tight. Dude, like your you. meter is like on it, like you and, and delivery is on it and that, on top of that, like I saw, you know, I saw you perform at the We Found You Music Showcase, and straight up, like you, by the end of it, you were just like you were sweating, you were into it, like it was like you perform and you write like somebody who was seeped in it from a young age. Yeah, like there I, it is, it is definitely there. Like it shows. I really, I really appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> Do you ever play uh, two old hippies? Oh, uh, no, the, but the guitar I, shop. But I. Uh, I was once an extra on an episode of Nashville and I sat oh, in and I sat in two old hippies where we filmed the scene all day. Oh man, that's amazing. <laughs> they had like a kids open mic that I played once on a on a college trip. I was just curious if you if you ever done that. No, that's, that's funny. Actually, I used to love I used to love Nashville. I probably watched that episode. That's my only time that I ever went in that building. I've never been in two old hippies since then. Huh, that's funny. Well, so when did you move to uh to Nashville? Like when when did it become permanent? Spot um, for you. I moved right after high school. It would have been like uh, two, three weeks after I graduated high school. Did you I do moved. college at all? No. Hey, that's killer. I'm a dropout, so that's uh, I, 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 I vibe with that. For I, sure. yeah, I personally, it's so weird, man. I, I had pretty good grades. I never saw myself going to college, and if I went, I actually wanted to go to uh, film school. Hey. Yeah, I would have gone for film, but I. I had a mentor my senior year of high school in Nashville who just gave me this great speech once. I'll never forget this where he was like, look, you've got three options. You can either go to school, sink yourself in debt and <laughs> put mu put music on the back burner for four years. You can half-ass music and school or you can move here where you know people already. You've got work waiting for you and you can throw yourself into producing records for people and make your money that way. And... I did it. And then kind of like the last semester of high school for me, I remember getting like FOMO, seeing everyone around me get accepted into college. And I was like, <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I should go to college. So I, I sent out some applications. I did get into school, but at that point, like I just had no way to afford it. And I'm like, nah, I just got to do it. I got to do music. What were you aiming for with film school? 
I would. I still really want to direct movies. I, so what's what's funny is like I I applied to film schools because I wanted to be a screenwriter. Yeah, and I got rejected and wound up at Berkeley. Wow. And that's how. And when I first got to Berkeley, music I was, was the fallback. Music was the fallback. When I first got to Berkeley, I was doing sound design for film. I was doing like foley editing and backgrounds, and I was doing that pretty much up until the moment that like Noah and I started Sleeping Lion. Wow. I all through my. Um, High school years, I was doing speech and debate. I was I went to nationals for duo improv and speech and debate, and I just oh wow! I, I was really like not chasing acting, but it was always kind of like a thing I loved doing. And I I as a kid, this is weird. I've never talked about this. As a kid, one of my weird like hobbies was I would read a book and then I would try to adapt the book into a screenplay format. And I I got really into like screenplay writing and had all these little like. Uh, pages on how to do it and like books on on the formatting and I just liked I, I was like a format uh, fetishist and like I just like the way scripts are laid out. No, as a kid, I, I used to um, like sort of I would come up with ideas. I would storyboard them. Then at recess, my friends and I would shoot it and like yeah. act. But like we didn't have cameras because we were yep. obviously like twelve <laughs> or thirteen. But yeah, that was like that was a big part of my my childhood was just like m- making movies. That's so cool. That's so cool. I love that. Well, so you must be, and I'm skipping ahead a little bit. Uh, I want to go back to Nashville, but you must be stoked to be like signed on Loud Robot because it's owned by one of the best directors of our generation. It is the weirdest connection I never could have pulled out of my ass at all. <laughs> I like. I remember telling people, like the Capital deal had just finished, and then I was like, oh, they want to approach this as a joint deal with Bad Robot. And like, it's just so random. I actually couldn't have just made that up. And and a lot of our conversations and with Capital stemmed around these ideas that I had and still have for ways to kind of uh, branch tech into the live music sphere, which I'm thinking a lot more about right now. And stuff yeah. that yeah. like, stuff that like, I don't really just need to talk about right now, but like, that's where a lot of my brain power has been focused the last few years. And these ideas of how VR and AR uh, grow in the next 10 years and and how music media expands. And then that's what Capital took to Bad Robot. And they were like, hey, let's talk about this together. And I mean, it just worked. And it helped that we could all talk about music and there was good chemistry in the room when I talked to these people about music. But it's crazy. Was JJ a part of those early conversations? No. With you? No, no, he wasn't. I've met JJ, I think, two times. Yeah, two times, both in the same day. Collectively, we've had like five minutes of conversation. And he's been super sweet. JJ, from what I understand, he's always been really into music. He has a whole like room in his house of synthesizers and guitars. He was really involved in scoring the first season of Lost. I'm pretty sure he came up huh. with the theme song for Fringe. And he's just like, he's a, he's a really musical guy. And his vision for Bad Robot had always included branching it out to become an indie label. Mm. But the brand just grew enough to do that in the last four or five years. Now there's a gaming department and they have a philanthropy wing and they've got a lot of activism they're doing and they've got the label, Loud Robot. The first time I met JJ, I did a showcase at the Bad Robot building and he was there and it said some words after and it was really sweet. Loud Robot, Bad Robot. Like I love these ideas of like brands that can like expand. That what grounds the brand isn't, like what it does, but the ethos of it. So like, it's not just a production company, but it is music. It, you know, it's, it's a label. It's, it is film. It is all that stuff for us. It's like, yeah, sleep and lion is where we do music, but like, why do we have to just be artists? Like, why can't we incorporate all of our interests into, into this thing? Yeah. And I think it's this interesting effect of, I guess, on demand living is that people, like you said, they want to engage with, personalities and ethos and ideas more than they Mm. want to engage just with content and cool you make music that's really cool what else do you like like reggie um anyone listening we we've all got a mutual friend named reggie whose project is arlamar i think arlamar's episode's coming out a little bit later so they'll they'll be introduced to him very shortly got it okay he's really into gaming 
Yeah. And hit like we, we spent the first 40 minutes of our podcast talking about games. Just straight <laughs> up. It was just a gaming podcast. I 100 percent believe that. I mean, he's really passionate about it. He's really yeah. into into gaming. Really knowledgeable too. Like he's, he's just he's very deep into the culture. He is really deep into the culture. And it's attractive to talk to him about that. It's sexy, honestly. He's yeah. just he just, <laughs> he just knows the world so well. <laughs> Well, you know, we were asking for like, you know, anime recommendations and he like went in, like he knows, he knows his stuff. But that's the thing too, is like one of the things that we've learned from doing Talking Lion, almost every, every musician has something else because they need to have something else. They need to have something that's like a safe sort of island away from, from music. And, and for some people that's film, for some people that's video games, for some people that's like exercise and fitness or whatever, but there's always been something else and i think that that that's what makes artists so interesting is that they've got so many different facets to them also i feel like speaking to what you were saying before like you were i I was a similar kind of kid who was always like building stuff like in the yard and like what was super into acting and i feel like there's just uh, often the type of person who ends up being an independent artist it just naturally has like just an inherent creative bug that has always applied to other facets of creation outside of just this one avenue Totally. It's, it's less about like, oh, I want to make music and it's more like there's an itch to scratch and that it comes from like like a certain process. The music happens to check those boxes, but it could essentially be applied to other things. I feel as creative doing this right now as I do writing songs sometimes, you know? Yeah. There, you know, there, there's musicians and then there's creatives and I think creatives are scratching an itch, but it, that happens to come from music. But, yeah. it's, but that's more of a coincidence. Music's I mean, just one you, of the easiest things to do by yourself. I think that's also why TikTok is appealing. It's like a, a medium that can be executed independently versus something like film where it really has to be a collaboration. You know, there is something to this. I think a lot about this. I Looking back at my life now, I think on some level, I learned to write songs and produce songs as like a way to facilitate getting to perform and getting mm. to like, be creative in the live capacity because like that was the first thing I wanted to do as a little kid was I just like singing and I like dancing and I I liked putting on little shows for people and acting and then I was like oh well how do you do that and I think at some young age it stuck with me like oh musicians get to do that okay well what does that mean maybe <laughs> I, maybe I learned to play piano oh maybe I should learn to write songs oh if I want to write songs good and I love Bowie and Prince and Stevie Wonder and Michael Jackson and they all produce their own music maybe I should learn to produce my music as well hmm. and it it was it's I didn't notice any of that at the time but looking back I think that's totally what it is music on some level is scratching a creative itch and there's other uh, capacities that you're still creative in well and that's like I, I think where I, I really like vibe and agree with you there is that like I first got into pop music because there was something that sounded really cool and attractive about like the mingle, about like being in rooms with like people who are hungry and like interested and interesting and just like hustling and working hard. Like there was something really cool about like these layers of conversations and these like goals and plans and like marketing strategy strategies and whatever. And it has been in the last two years that I've like fallen in love with the actual like musicality of it with yeah. the songwriting. Yes. With, because for me it was about scratching a certain creative itch, but that was coming from from this other sort of pocket. Just like for you it was performing, for me it was it communicating and interacting. But you know, same difference. I think for me, it's it's more like syntax and culture. I, I really like what you said earlier about you were like a, a glutton for formatting. I really appreciate that. I think he said fetishist. A fetishist or a form a formatting fetishist. I, I I like that. I feel like my entire brain is dedicated to like figuring out systems. And I think as soon as yeah. I, as soon as someone in songwriting class presented to me the uh, a, a piece of Max Martin writing on paper and was like with like little diagrams to like how the pieces fit together, I'm like, holy fucking shit! This is what like I want to get good at this because it was like I, a big math puzzle. I agree with that. And also on some level, there's this contrarian part of me that hates that structure. And yet I will say, I, I'm i still a weirdo who loves putting together spreadsheets and lists. Oh, and the same. Um, no, well, I mean, this is like a, a f- kind of funny like segue, but I think my first real brush with, oh, songwriting is really, really awesome and, and a very specific type of expression came from the day we met. Really? Yeah. So 
just for context, because now this will be the second time I believe people will be hearing this story. There'll be a third time they'll mm-hmm. be hearing this story on Reggie's interview. But essentially, our first session, we so we did you know um, Kate and Katie, like um, Sondar, Mila? No, no, I did not. So they they were friends. They were our only Nashville friends, and we were having a rough time, like in March of like 2017 before we moved out to LA and on a whim we were like hey can we go to Nashville uh, and they're like sure you can stay with us so we just like we asked them the day before and then we literally flew out yeah within 24 hours of talking to them so we were in we were in Nashville we met Chris Klein cuz they were all friends and we kept in touch with him while we were in Boston and then when we drove out to LA we we're like well we're going to drive through Nashville right to see Kate and Katie but also just because like it's on the way. Noah's got some family nearby. Like it, it should be. It should be just like a nice like stop in. But Chris Klein essentially was like, "Hey, I can book out one of the rooms at Warner, and there's this artist named Fangs. Do you guys want to do a session with him?" And Noah had done some like sessions at Berkeley, but I had never really done a session at that point. And wow! But I was like, "Screw it!" You know, Warner sounds like a cool place to have a first session. Yeah. So we're going to, we're going to do it. So we, we show up and that was when we had the first session with Jake. We struggled for a good chunk of the first day. Did you have two days on that track? We had two days. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Actually, I remember seeing your name on like the chalkboard and being like, Oh, that's an interesting name. It, yep. um, <laughs> Cause it was, it was uh, the pre Chaz uh, era. What was, it was interesting is that I think I re- like really struggled like 95% of the first day. And then we came up with the hook in like the last 10 minutes. And then the next day we were just sort of off to the races. But you had the room after us. And Reggie was just sort of stopping by just like to say hi to Jake. And we were kind of solid RLMR fans. So it was just a crazy experience, especially in retrospect, because that was our first session. That was also our first cut. And wow. you and Reggie were just like hanging hanging in the room, um, just being like the coolest, coolest dudes. <laughs> Reggie and I, I think we'd met like one time before that. Okay. That's funny. Maybe two times, but we shared a lot of the same friend group. That was the first time I met Jake. I've still only met him like two or three times. We text occasionally. You're friendly with Martin Yago, right? Right. Chris is actually like one of my best friends and is like the one of the reasons anything is happening in my life right now. Amazing. Great guy. That that's the thing is like it was that trip that we met uh like everybody. Like we met your manager, we met like Literally everybody we know from Nashville, who like half of them moved out to Los Angeles, but yeah. um, <laughs> or have deals in LA, but like right, yeah, I don't know. It was just it was just so so cool because all of a sudden now here are all these new people, new friends, um, and since then we've just like been able to watch you watch you come up, you know. Also, like Nate, you you've just been seriously so supportive, honestly, with all the we found new music stuff. Oh, of course, I mean. It's- you're great. I mean, if, if if you make it easy, because you're great. You know, like your your songwriting, your vibe, like it's all it's all really tight. Thank you. You hadn't launched the project yet when we met. Is that true? Oh gosh. Um. When was that? Was that seventeen or early eighteen? That would that would have been August of twenty seventeen. Jeez, man. No, I had I had launched the project. I okay. put out I'd put out the first record earlier that year, but also. Sometimes I feel like that album is only really part of the project in name only. Mm. Like in a lot of ways, I don't know that I figured out what I'm doing now until after that was out and in the world. And actually because of Chris Martignago, um, my CSAC rep, um, who, by the way, by happenstance, like no Machiavellian chess here. <laughs> I've known him since I was like 15. Oh, wow. My rep at CSAC, he played bass for me once when I was like 15 before he worked at CSAC. And then <laughs> one day I log on to my uh, to, to register some new songs and I see he's my rep. So it was crazy. So like he, yeah. And so I went and played him that first record before it was done. And when it came out, he was like, I'm going to send this to some people around town. And he sent it to Chris Martignago. Chris and I met. He's like, hey, this is cool. You know, I'll keep an eye on it. Let me know if there's anything I can do to help. Two weeks later, I got asked to play South by and uh-huh. he was one of five people in the room for my set. And then <laughs> after my set, he was like, you know, this is really cool. Let me help you figure this out. Let me help you get with some cool producers and writers and figure out what you're doing. And he 
was basically managing me, but not managing me. And he told me like, hey, don't call me a manager. I just want to help. I really care about the music. And I like you as a guy. And we just hung out a lot. We'd had dinner a lot, me and his wife and him and his brother-in-law. And we like would make dinner and go play Frisbee golf together. <laughs> and eventually that led me to my booking agent, my management. And then, uh, you know, because of that, my deal with capital, but Chris Martin Yago was why I was working at the Warner building. He would, he just let me use that room right. some, sometimes to work on tracks that I was backed up on. Cause I didn't really have a space to work in at the time. Well, my understanding of that room was that like, it was, even though, I mean, it was in the Warner building, but both Chris Marniago and Chris Klein were both at Atlantic at yep. the time. Yeah. And they were like, hey, there should be a room where anybody, like, regardless of their deal, regardless of whatever, can just like go and write for a second. Like, it'll be, yep. there'll be a, a setup, there'll be a Rhodes, a table, and a chalkboard. Like, you know, and they essentially had this room for, for anybody they kind of like were willing to like sort of support. And so that was when, when we were like, how, how do we like suddenly get like into like a Warner room? It was like, this was the Chris's creation, essentially. Yep. Yep. I love that. Yeah. But it's yeah, that really was, that move. was it, it's just, it's just funny how like in that hour, it was just like, you know, the, the five of us. Just out of you know, out of out of the cosmos, just like oh, here's here's all of us. I'm also pretty positive my head was shaved at that time. I, I vaguely remember it. I you know what I love was I just remembered like how enthusiastic you are. Like you were you know you came in like you've always been just like a you know like a whirlwind of energy. But like that was the <laughs> thing is like Noah and I were so kind of like nervous. We had a bit of a fish out of water, you know. You, I think you were more comfortable than I was. Yeah, but I was. I feel like the part of the reason I don't remember a lot of that is I was internally, I was, I was pushing myself so hard to be like, all right, this has got to be a really good pop song, and I was just like, how do I make it good pop? And I feel like I was just totally in my head for the, that entire two days. So I don't remember meeting people because I was just like not there. So it was just like nice my, that my, you had, wasn't the wavelength that was on. It was just nice that you were like just came in with such a positivity, and you know you didn't like you weren't like oh get the like you, like we we were definitely a little bit over time, and you were like oh dude like the song sounds cool like don't worry about it like which I really you know if, if somebody was like pushing us out it would have been like a terrifying addition <laughs> to I would not do thank you thank you no I would I would not do that Noah actually on that point of like this idea of in the session being like I've got to make this like a perfect pop song or whatever do you feel like because y'all moved to LA right after that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you feel like moving so immediately with that mindset still, has that mindset been cemented now in LA or has it been challenged? And like, I, I don't know, like what, how do, how is your like philosophy on making things changed since you moved? I think, I mean, it, it's interesting because I actually moved to LA, lived, lived here for a couple months and then went back to Boston to finish school. So I feel like, the the couple months I feel like I, I struggled with, the, with philosophically a lot more in that that couple of months when I first moved to LA, really brushing up against that pop perfection and like getting the math right and like just writing to some kind of nebulous goal of oh is it a banger and then I feel like going back to school and really having a time to freely create and care a little bit less I feel like I worked on a lot of records where the, you know the pop sensibility was there but I was a lot more interested in like okay but like. I want to make something that's a little bit more left of center, a little bit weirder. And, I, and a lot of the stuff that I worked on in that period was a lot more free and I, I cared a little bit less about. And I think since moving back to L.A., the more I the older I get and the more time I spend here, like working on pop music, I think that the more I tend towards a philosophy of like, I'm just going to figure out what I sound like. I'm going to try to cultivate a sensibility that people that that has some value to people and has some kind of unique edge about it and care less about like can I make something that sounds like it was produced by Zed or produced by Gray even though that was something that I think that was really important to me I think the more time I spend here the more I'm like yeah I'm not going to I'm not going to be happy and I'm also not going to kind of cut it as a producer if I'm not able to find like a truly unique voice which I think is a journey most people go through but it has it has philosophically been interesting I think the more time I spend out here the more I'm like yeah, I just want to make records like fucking like Brian Wilson. Like I feel like I, the more time yeah. I spend out here, the more I gravitate towards my roots as an indie artist. Yeah, and like my jazz training as a Berkeley person, and more the more I'm trying to like make some crazy baroque music. <laughs> that makes me so happy. On that, <laughs> like on that note, I think one of the reasons like why I was struggling on the Good Now session with Fangs was because for that 
for 90% of the day, I was getting in my own way. Like I was worrying about the session, worrying about my own experiences, worrying about like what it means to write about something or to write where really all it took was just like asking him like how he was doing and really being able to internalize and understand that to get his skin in the game, to get my skin in the game and then suddenly like have a song that connected and resonated. Um, and I think that when I first came out here, I felt kind of like an imposter because I mean, yeah, you, you know, you grew up with pop music, like no grew up with pop music. I really didn't grow up with a lot of pop music. Growing up with pop music, but also I kind of like once I had discovered that that wasn't the only music there was, I dove really, really hard in the opposite direction through my sure. yeah. <laughs> I went from a place of like actually genuinely resenting anything that resent, resembled pop music. I resented anything that had a chorus to suddenly yeah. like, I, this is my job now. And it hasn't even been like, like it's better. It has been literally like the best writing has come from when I've been comfortable. If I could, the more comfortable I can be in a session and the more comfortable I can make whoever I'm with in the session, just the better and the best songs come from it, you know? 1,000%. Because you can't get in your own way. And I think that like we, the three of us, think so much about culture and think so much about style and form and everything that like we were listening to Not Okay before. before yeah, like there is so much candid lyricism in your music and that's what we connect with. Wow. And that's what I like about most writers is when when there is you know, just enough skin in the game and just enough weirdness with a pop sensibility. It's not pop form and it's not pop like strictness, but it's a pop sensibility. It's, oh, I could make some of these choices and I will make some of these choices, but I will make those choices in moderation. And that requires you to just get out of your own way. And that's, I think, something that over the last two years out here has definitely rung true, especially listening to songs that I've liked versus the ones that I felt fell short. I would agree with that. I think the best music I've made personally, and you know, what is what is the best? Maybe the things that still resonate with me and that resonate with the most people, that's probably a good metric, mm. are the ones where I do just get out of my own way. And I don't, it's not thinking about it too much. I mean, sometimes you get the ones that are so tightly constructed and they're really meticulous and like, that's what resonates. But there's so much more resonance I think when you just make what feels intuitive yeah and you can also tell I think you can tell when you listen to someone else's records like oh they didn't think too much about this it's the reason that like you know for for as wacky some of it is it's the reason that like Lil Nas X is fun yeah, yeah. or the reason that like <laughs> like Doja Cat works yeah is, well, like, because all that comes from an authentic place regardless of how sort of surface level or whatever it may or may not be you know like you can tell they enjoyed making the record they're having fun they're having so much fun making those records or like the early killers stuff I mm. yeah I don't think there was and maybe I'm wrong I feel like there wasn't a lot of thought put into like like the, all, the the story that I know about the Killers, the first song they ever wrote was Mr. Brightside. Mr. They Brightside, got into a practice room together, first, and like that guy had that that riff, and he. I, I'm pretty sure Brent Fly was just like coming out of my like. It seems like one of those songs that was written in 15 minutes. I'm pretty sure it was. Their first five song demo was Mr. Brightside. Somebody told me all these things that all these things that I have done. Jenny was a friend of mine. Smile like you mean it. Oh, oh yeah, and like. All these things that I have done, I, I I feel like you couldn't write that in like a a pop session, quote unquote, in 2020, because the chorus is so low in the register. The the verse is like I understand, and then the chorus, yeah, you know, you gotta help me out. Yeah, no, don't yeah. you put me on the back. And it's so fucking good. It's so good. Well, the th the thing too, like that definitely gets me. And when we were when we were talking with Reggie, we were talking about like Paramore and about how like what it what it meant to just like write these like great records after great records without necessarily like the the zeitgeist telling you what it means to have a great record. Yeah. To to the killer's point, Ben Gibbard wrote, "I will follow you uh, through the dark." 
I'll follow you into the into dark. the dark. Into, into the, dark. the dark. I'll follow you into the dark. He wrote that in 15 minutes in a laundromat. Of course, like he sometimes did. songs just sort of pour out of these people. But also, I consider like two of the most formative records for me to be like the phrase "How to Save a Life" and Bon Iver's "Forever Forever Ago." Like those okay. two records meant the world to me. But what I love about those two records is that the emotion is just absolutely unquestionably there. Bon Iver like, is they on are a just, totally other level. Yeah. Like, but you can hear him in the cabin and like with the fray, you can hear like Isaac Slade went in on like every song he played. Like it was just crazy how like intense some of these records got. Yeah. And I don't know. I think that when you feel it, you vibe with it. It's like what makes the pre-chorus of um, Happy by Julia Michaels like so fucking nutso, you know? She's she's brilliant. Did you, t- did you tour with her? I did a show with her. Gotcha. Cool, cool, yeah. cool. How's that? Great. Really, really great. Um, she uh, It was in Raleigh, North Carolina. And oh, cool. honestly, the fans I got out of that show are still... There's this group of like 10 kids from that show who comment on every picture who were in all of my live streams. And That's awesome. It's, it was just one of those shows that worked so perfectly. And she had asked all of her openers on that tour to not have drums and I think this is maybe projection, but like some of her music's a little more toned down, right? So I feel like it's to make the big moments in her show very big. Yeah. Mm. And no shade. Totally respect that. I actually really appreciated that. So that show was just me playing guitar and my drummer played keyboard. That's awesome. And it was just the two of us. And the audience there was so receptive to that because when you go to a Julia Michaels show, you're going for songs. Yeah. Yeah. And so the crowd didn't care that it wasn't like a big thing. They were just listening to the songs. And it yeah. was it was great. It's actually like the best parts of Nashville culture in some way. That Song rounds, like the listener. Uh, right, right. And I had just not seen that outside of Nashville, really. And those kids were just so receptive. And it was a great show. Her and her team were super nice. You had a song in To All the Boys I Loved Before? Yeah, man. What was, what from a, from a writing standpoint, what's it like writing for like an you know something that's established like something like like a movie like so that. I, I love this story because i didn't write the song for the movie and it was an accident that it ended up in there that's awesome nice. and this is not like a press story I, lo- I love telling this so i wrote that song actually i had just gotten back from the silent retreat at a monastery and i love going and doing that once a year this is the first year in a while i haven't done it and i got back and i was writing with this guy davis nash one of my best friends who, to work with and we were just venting about how we were tired of writing pop songs. <laughs> we were we we were tired of structure and we were like let's just make something today that doesn't have a chorus and that doesn't have something we just wanted to make something that made us feel. It was like a Frank Ocean and the Beatles were what we were referencing. Like they yeah. would sometimes they just make songs that are 2 minutes and then it ends. And honestly, as a writer, I feel really validated by that song because it's the quickest growing song I ever put out and there's not a single part of it that repeats. Hmm. That's it's, awesome. It's just total stream of consciousness. And at the end- Almost it, an irony there that like the thing that resonates the most is the thing that breaks conventional form. Yeah. Right. And then it's I, like it just builds and builds and builds. And I remember at the time when I turned that demo and a few people on my team were like, oh yeah, maybe we should add a drop after that. I'm like, no, no, <laughs> that's, uh. that's the point is that it builds and it ends. And like it, there's no chorus, there's no drop, there's no drum that's going to come in and get intense, like a muse thing someone referenced, but, and, and, and from a good place, I know where they were coming from, but so well, it's the job. The job is to be like, oh, here's the song. It, are there other versions of this song that, you know, like, right. I, I feel like songwriting so much it is like this sort of um, curation process of, oh, in my head, there are 10 different versions or like w- places this song could go. Right. And now you're looking for like, maybe is A, the best version, but also potentially B, just the version that makes sense for the song, you know? Right. So to the um, point of writing for the film, though, there wa- I did have to change one thing. So the ending was originally just instrumental for a while. Mm. Uh, it goes into this piano bit that's like, and it was just that instrumental for like a, uh, 30, 40 seconds at the ending. And then we had submitted a few songs to that soundtrack because the soundtrack coordinator was at Capitol and all the songs got rejected, which I was cool with. And I just thought that's not going to happen. I had written as I'll ever be for vulnerabilia. 
but it didn't end up on there. And so we were saving it for whatever's next. Mm. And my A&R was listening to the song in her office and the soundtrack coordinator walked by, heard the song in the hallway and said, <laughs> that, send me that song. I have the scene for that song. And then <laughs> it was great. And then That's great. they said, okay, could you possibly find a way to make this a love song with this last section, this instrumental section? Could you add a new section there about like, because the song is about like just being present and and appreciating where yeah. you are and like just being really mindful of the moment and was there a way to make that a love song and honestly y'all at any other point in my life I would have heard that and been like no fuck you guys you know, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not gonna compromise my art like that man but also it was like this is how this song is gonna get heard yeah and I really care about this song and if this gives an avenue for this song to get heard by more people than it would if I just put it out. I'm fine with this because it's still about what it's about. And well and that's the thing there's an art to how you put out the music too. Yeah. You know it's it's yes. like sometimes like um uh, yes. putting it together. It's like it's like there's as much art to how each dot is gonna connect to form the image, you know? Yeah. I'm still so in awe of how different every song rollout goes. That every song <laughs> has its own unique rollout. Like singles. I mean, records are different. You know this. but like, We just did a scavenger hunt for ours. Like a, Yeah, you come up yeah. with these new things and the team around them is always a little bit different. I mean, like for in my, in my mm -hmm. case, you know, I've got the label now and my management has been there the whole time. But now I've got like a publisher and that's cool. But some like it's just a different... Different PR people, different video people, P graphic designers. Yeah. Right, right. Totally different team. A different uh, magazine that wants to break it. A different... Mm -hmm a different video breaking in adjunct with it. But but so writing for that scene of the movie and not seeing it, just writing it on feeling alone, I actually really like that. Mm. I see you have like a ton of tattoos on your arm, one of which is actually in Hebrew. Is it Chai? Is that... It's your, uh, it's Adonai. Got you, got you. I I saw I saw only like a bit bits and pieces. I thought for, for a second it was it was the good luck high. But yeah, yeah, can you tell me just a little bit about your tattoos? Lightning round on your tattoos. Yeah, sure. Lightning round. All right, I've got uh, I've got oh, I've got six. So I'll try to break them down quick. First one I got was the word logic uh, with this kind of Sanskrit font. Grew up had a lot of great Hindu and uh, Indian friends in my hometown, and I felt like. If there was like beauty in the universe at that time in my life, I was like, it's that humans have this like reasoning ability and we have logic and that like that's what you've got to like cut through the chaos in the world. So I got the word logic. Mm. Uh, my second tattoo was uh, a hummingbird. I got this for an ant who passed mm. away when I was younger and I, I love this tattoo still. Maze the colors hold up, held up on it. Third tattoo was this quote on my arm, art should comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. Mm. Oh yeah, um, yeah that's, that's a good, good one. one. Yeah, uh, like somewhere it's like a Plato quote, but there's all like it, it's a bunch of different sources. I got that one kind of spontaneously. Looking back, maybe would have done it differently, but it's on my body, and I'm I am I am <laughs> I am proud of it. Fourth was this uh, this tattoo with the Hebrew name of God and the alchemical shorthand for the philosopher's stone. I had this phase where I was really really into like esoterica and occultism. Still kind of am, but to lesser degree. And I had a lot of fun reading like alchemical manuscripts and stuff. More mm. like more for like the spiritual aspect of it. But this there's this idea of like turning lead to gold. And what people don't realize is that it's not literal. It never was with alchemy. Alchemy is a spiritual practice where the idea is you take your lead base human nature and transmute it to gold. You become a tool for the divine. Oh. And for for me that's creativity. Creativity is how you, you like, the idea is that you are the philosopher's stone. You are the thing that turns all things to gold mm. when you become a tool of the divine. And what is the root of the divine? It's the creative element. I wanted that. I felt like I wanted to like brand that on my body and like, all right, if I'm made in the image of God, then I'm a creator in the image of the creator. That's what I got. That's so, awesome. So that's what I got. So and, creation being a type of apotheosis, like the, the act of creation being not just the creative act, but almost like a holy act of like, yeah, it's like, it's like the universe kind of creating itself. Right. Yeah. Know? And this like, idea, this idea of making the uncreated and like manifesting the potential of things that like, that's the holiest thing you can do is to take the imagination and actualize it. I love that. My next one was, the, was, the, was a butterfly with the, the lunar cycle behind it. This idea that like growth is constant, even when you can't see it, change is always happening. I don't really believe in things staying the same. I'm, I, I just don't think it's true. Everything is dynamic. 
yeah, everything's dynamic. Everything's fluid. I live in that place. And then the next one, the most recent one was on my arm. I have a little bouquet of flowers and each of them are my, are a favorite flower of my immediate family. So hmm. I've got, oh, that's, that's awesome. really cute. Yeah. I've got a hyacinth, a plumeria and a hydrangea for each of my, that's, that's from awesome. My, yeah. From my mom, dad, and sister. And I just felt like this year was going to be weird. I thought it was going to be on tour and I wanted my family with me, but now I'm separate from them in a different way. And it's nice to feel like I'm still connected with them tangibly. Yeah. By the time this comes out, SOS will also be out. SOS. And I, I, I just want to know about the creation of that song, kind of what went into it, what, what is it about for you, and, and what you hope people take away from it. This is crazy. I actually wrote SOS and Not Okay the exact same week. Oh, that's awesome. And the same week I wrote another song I put out previously before the EP called Do I Do It. Um, oh, yeah. So I, I just started going to therapy. A lot of vulnerability for me. Is Hell about- yeah, therapy. Yeah, shout hell yeah, therapy. therapy. Shout out, out therapy. shout out my therapist Dean. What up, Dean? <laughs> um, he will never hear this. Um, no, I I had started going to therapy and you know unpacking these kind of more toxic traits and and for me my my biggest crutch my addiction is the illusion of productivity and I my whole mm. life I use this this myth I tell myself of like constant output and like judging my whole worth on my output. And I use that as a way to keep distance from people, to not be intimate in my friendships and my relationships. And at the time I was just going, I was in and out of all these like super self-destructive relationships that all had like an obvious eject button on them, like two weeks, two months max. Um, and like just never being upfront with people in my life and I always feeling like I was hiding something even though I really didn't have anything to hide and 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 in this weird quest of just like my whole identity being that like I am productive I hmm. am I'm efficient I oh man I wake up and I make three phone calls and I go to the studio and I'm working on a meeting in the studio and I'm making a spreadsheet while we're writing like a I've, song I've and- sacrificed so much for this but it's like nobody asked you to you know like <laughs> exactly <laughs> Exactly. And I'd like this idea of like being super looking, super put together and like knowing that like I'm not, I would, and this is a part of my life too, where I would just go home and like, I could, I only pulled that off while I was like stoned all the time and like, (laughs) and like sober, I would just get super tired and like all of it would catch up with me and be like, Oh God, right. Wow. I just want to lay in bed. I do not want to be productive today. And like, I'm, I'm better about that now, but in 2018, I wasn't there, but I, I had had like a burnout moment. I have one like every two years or so. Hey, everybody and, can have a burnout yeah. moment as a treat, you know? Exactly. And and I I uh, had gone into a session with my buddy Kevin Griffin and talked about that. And we talked about his experience with rehab, getting sober for him. And just like the vulnerability that it takes to like ask for help in the first place and to go to therapy because both of us had had this experience and this is what SOS is about of hitting the same wall over and over and over again and learning the same lesson every time and then not doing anything about it. So Mm. the song for me is about these cycles and just repeating the same mistakes and wanting to not do that anymore. I want to get over it and not pull the same old shit, but I've got a way of getting in my way. I want to get over it. Mm. And yeah, and that's that's what it's about for me. On a a different level, before I signed the record deal, I was going to put out Vulnerabilia independently and SOS was part of the EP and I had dropped SOS as a single, as the lead single from the EP. And then right about that time is when I started talking to Capital, and we had to take it down and hold the EP for a year. And I still have fans today asking me, is that song ever coming back out? When so I remember it? you played it at We Found New Music at the showcase, right? Yes, and I, if I remember, y'all did a write-up on it too. And Yeah, I think I think I wrote it, SOS. It, was, it wasn't Save Our Save Our Souls. It was... Um, same old shit. Same old shit. <laughs> I thought that was brilliant. I thought Thank that was you. absolutely brilliant. I, I'm a big fan of like... Um, like titles that that you assume one thing about it and then like it flips it. Thank yeah. you. And actually, so that's a, like a pretty colloquial thing where I grew up. I would hear these older dudes all the time say like, ah, well, SOS, same old shit, different day. And <laughs> it's such a regional thing. And then at the time, we, when Kevin and I wrote the song, we had like a different kind of hook in it. It was, I want to get over it. Ooh, 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 and not put the same old shit. Like very poppy, very millennial whoopy. And then in producing the song, I was like, what's cooler than that? It just felt safe. It felt like predictable. It was good, but I was like, eh, this could be cooler. And then 
I was like, oh my God, a telegraph. What, <laughs> what if I spell out SOS in Morse code and that's the hook? And so the hook of the song is, I want to get over it. And not for the same old shit. And it's honestly one of my more insp- one of my more inspired choices. That's, that's awesome. Great. No, that's great. I mean, yeah. th- here, that's the thing about writing a brand or whatever is just like like it's supposed to be a filter. Like use what you know. It may, if it makes sense, it works. You know. Yeah. Like that's that's awesome. Now I'm glad I'm glad that song's out. Like what, yeah, when when I heard that that was the upcoming single, I'm like, I feel like I've heard that one before. <laughs> right. You know? Right. I remember rocking out to it when you played it at Madame Siam. We actually only held it because everyone at Capitol really likes that song, and we wanted to give it time to have space of its own to breathe and not be like subsumed by the EP. Mm. Yeah. But by by now this will it'll be out. It's actually just going to be part it's part of the EP. It's been added to the EP where oh, wow. it should have where it should have been originally, but like adding to a playlist. But we wanted to give the song room to breathe. Uh maybe it goes to radio. We're not positive right now. We're you know, we're letting not okay have its moment, but Which radio- I mean, I, I just saw that your 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 second most alternative added to to alternative radio. Bro, um, what what the fuck? So, con- <laughs> hey, congratulations! I saw that that was yesterday. I think I saw what that up on fuck? on your manager's Facebook. It's crazy. Yeah, I just posted that this morning on on uh, on all my stuff. That's yeah, it's, <laughs> it's sick. And uh, that you know, now now we're in it for the long haul. Now we got to work it. Now is just such a great time for somebody like you, somebody who is speaking not just to sort of the the cultural truth that's there, but also like to your own and staying authentic with that. If anybody can come up with creative ways to make this quarantine not just manageable but um exciting and interesting i think it's definitely you wow thank you you've always been on to stuff and you've always just put out really good energy you know i think so much of the reason we fell in love with songwriting and, and production and whatnot was because of how good that first session was and you were part of that vibe and and realizing that that that's a community that that we could strive ah, for. My you heart. Know, I, we're, yeah, you He's know, guessing. we're just uh, we're discussing a little bit, you know. But well, when we can when we can do, you know, physical sessions again, again <laughs> we should do something in L.A. Yeah, I'd love that. Sure. Yeah, really love really that. Nice. Yeah, I mean, yeah, in, in an alternate universe, we're in uh, we're in one of the Capitol studios, like across the table from each other. But at least here, you know, like we both get to wear pajamas, and there, there, there are the pros and cons of doing doing things virtually. But you know, we'll we'll always be fans, but you yeah. know, like we'll always be like in your corner. So we're just excited for what you're up to. Thank you, guys. That means a lot. Seriously. Of course, man. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming on the yeah. show. This has been super fun. Hey, yeah, likewise. Likewise, man. Good luck with everything and congratulations on the release. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me. Even when